This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE, for 20% off your order. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. I got to hang out with Chris Winger and Jesse Ginsberg. They're both speech-language pathologists who really dive into neurodiversity-affirming practices and really how to celebrate and honor neurodiversity. I love so much about this interview, but personally, I really love having conversations with SLPs, speech language pathologists, who are trained in sensory integration and understand how sensory integration affects how we show up in everything, including our language and communication. This was such a fun one for me. Also, they're fantastic follows over on Instagram. So make sure you head on over there and follow them after this interview. We dive deep into the sensory systems in my book, Tiny Humans, Big Emotions, where you can learn more about your child's unique sensory systems and how to support them and what it looks like to really show up for who they are as unique individuals. You can also learn more about your sensory systems and your nervous system. You can learn what it looks like to differentiate emotional regulation from one person to the next. Head on over to Seed and so.org slash book to snag tiny humans, big emotions. And if you want to get started on understanding your child's sensory systems right now, head to seedquiz.com to take our regulation quiz that we worked with an occupational therapist to create, and it will help you learn more about your child's nervous system and some activities that might be helpful for them in regulation, some things they might be sensitive to, some things that they they might be seeking or that really help them calm, seedquiz.com. All right, folks, let's dive in. Hey there, I'm Alyssa Blass Campbell. I'm a mom with a master's degree in early childhood education and co-creator of the Collaborative Emotion Processing Method. I'm here to walk alongside you through the messy, vulnerable parts of being humans raising other humans with deep thoughts and actionable tips. Let's dive in together. Hey 
Hey everyone, and welcome back to Voices of Your Village. Today, I get to hang out with one of my favorite internet couples that I stumbled upon. I get to hang out with Chris and Jesse. Chris and Jesse are both SLPs and speech language pathologists. And what I love about them is that their approach is so in alignment with what we do at Seed that we can't do any of this work without talking about the nervous system. Uh, anything in the world, I think. We can't leave the nervous system out of it. And I love that it's such a crucial part of their work. Hi, Chrissy. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Chrissy. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Chris. That works too. I I, I used to go by Chrissy sometimes when people would pick on me, the bullies. I'm well, sorry, to, sorry to bring it right back to the surface for you there, oh, Chris. No. <laughs> good. Let's talk, let's talk about that some more, Chris. <laughs> um, I've got some childhood trauma that we're going to just talk about right now. Oh my God, I love it. You're in the perfect place. <laughs> <laughs> so I good. acknowledge it. <laughs> I love it. Hi. I, when I was following you, I, I'm curious, like as you were coming through your training as SLPs, is where you are now kind of where you started or kind of what did that journey to where you are now look like? I've worked with so many SLPs and frankly, OTs, and it is not one size fits all. So curious what that looked like for you. Gosh, yeah. So um, let me give you a quick background. I started in education as a special education teacher. So prior to being a speech pathologist, I had some um, good experience of working in the class, knowing what it was like to sit at the IEP table as a teacher, knowing what it was like to uh, command the ship of 20 students in a class. It's um, then then transitioned into the role of a speech pathologist where I was working more on, like not necessarily one-to-one always, but just in smaller groups. I really like that. So um Things have changed so much. So kind of the topic of neurodiversity we'll dive into, but I can tell you that where we were when I first started to where we are now and our understanding of listening to neurodivergent experiences, including my own, I was diagnosed with ADHD many years ago, um, but just finding that approach as the whole education system in general, the IEP system and where we were at, which was built on a foundation of trying to fix kids that were never broken. And that in turn created a kind of a a systemic approach of more anxiety because it was this belief of saying, hey, we need to force these kids into situations to so they can learn back and forth conversation exchange and initiating. And, And what that ended up doing was it created a a a lot more stress and anxiety. So where we were at then compared to where we're at now um, has drastically changed because we're learning what are what are different approaches and ways that we can help our neurodivergent learners and and and, and most effectively do that. Yeah, yeah, I love that note. So I want to hear from you too, Jesse. But I love that note of like the goal was to really help them conform into like neurotypical expectations, right? Like how do, how do we get you to fit into this box that feels cozy for us and works really well for us in the school system, especially Um, we've, we've been talking on the back end about the term pro-social at seed and 
some beef that we have with it and <laughs> I feel like it kind of fits right in there too of like it's the idea of changing kids and changing who they are and how they operate to often make it more convenient for us right absolutely I yeah. think that's probably make us more comfortable mm-hmm. yeah, make us more comfortable I would have to say that's probably one of the more common questions that is asked it's like from a parent standpoint of well so should I be teaching my child my autistic child or my neurodivergent ADHD child to socialize or not. And so there's two different approaches to that question. The first is if the goal is to teach them to imitate their neurotypical peers or to be someone they're not, that's not the direction. That's not the type of socializing we want. But if the goal is to give them the, the child context of why neurotypicals socialize or do the things they do and give autonomy for the child to make their decisions when the time comes. Uh, that's, that is the approach. So yeah, we definitely want to be teaching the social part. We just have to be cautious on which way we go about it because teaching someone to be someone they're not ends up creating anxiety, which then eventually turns into adult depression. And, and and it can be lead to serious mental health issues as as a child grows into their adult life. And I think that's one of the like the the things we miss out on the most is what is our big picture goal here? And we get so caught up as therapists in the day to day. What does therapy look like? How can we get them to meet their goal? That we forget that the goal of every parent on this planet is for their child to be happy and for their child to live a fulfilling life, and for their child to be autonomous. And it just so, so often we act out of alignment with what that big picture goal is, and we get caught up in these tiny steps of where we're trying to go. But that just makes me think back to, I talked about this recently, I think on Instagram, I shared a story of what I used to call my big, my biggest success story was a five-year-old boy who was autistic, who you couldn't tell was autistic anymore. That was like what I would say, wow, I am such a good therapist. You can't even tell he's autistic anymore. And it's just, it's funny because my work setting has not changed. I've always been in private practice. My approach hasn't changed in the sense that I've always been a relationships-based approach type of therapist. But what has changed so much is what my goals are for my kids. And I think that's something that we talk about openly. And it's scary to share those stories because people are going to think, oh, my God, you're a horrible person. Why was that your goal? But ultimately, our goal is to help other people learn more, too. And the more we share these stories and are vulnerable with what we've learned, the more it allows other people to move forward and take those steps and you know, start to do things in a new way. Sure. Well, and I think acknowledging the fears that come up too, right? Like my, my little guy's two. So I have a two-year-old and I'm pregnant now and my two-year-old and I have very different nervous systems. The way that we operate is very different. Uh, He's like cookie cutter, my husband. And we were at Sage, we had his, his name is Sage, two-year-old birthday party with a joint party with our neighbors just actually in retrospect like kind of say just hell and we were outside for it which is like easier for him but about halfway through he came up and he said mama feeling overwhelmed take a break go inside come back out I was like great go ahead he went in with my husband 
they were hanging, reading books, whatever. Zach also was like, I welcome this break and goes in, they take their break. And I, on the other hand, I'm like, this fills my cup. I'm outside, I'm engaging, I'm interacting. And later we were chatting about it and I was like, oh, I, I just want to make sure that he has like the skills that he needs to be able to thrive. Like, what if he's at a conference? What if he's at a work thing? What if he's whatever? And Zach was like, yeah, he's got him. He was there. He hung out. He left. He took a break. He came back, did the cake and ice cream thing, like hung out a little bit longer and then peaced. Like, what is fulfilling to you, Alyssa, is different than what's fulfilling for Sage. And I was like, yeah, like that was the reminder I needed, right? Like you mentioned there, Jesse, the fulfillment part, right? That we all, we want kids to have fulfilling lives. And I think part of that is acknowledging that what's fulfilling for them might be different than what is fulfilling for us. Oh yeah. You're speaking our language. I mean, we have four kids between uh, the youngest is almost three months, the oldest is six. And we always talk about this is a daily conversation is how our sensory systems are so different. Our six-year-old is super anxious, uh, very much an avoider, maybe has some similar qualities to Sage. And same, you know, when he goes to a party like that, he's not the one like jumping into the group. He's always next to one of us. And it's just it's funny how in therapy, we set these expectations for our kids to do things that we wouldn't even want to do. Sure. <laughs> right? Like your um, example of going to the playground. and Yeah, that's that. kind of how I shape my social media is based on situations and goals that we give kids that we wouldn't want to do. We're like, I would never want that to happen. <laughs> and so, like yeah, it's, it's like, Chris, your goal, we're going to go to the playground today. And your goal is to meet a parent that you've never talked to before and talk to them for five minutes about The Bachelor. <laughs> He's right? like, You're not allowed. I'd to rather die. Life. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen like goals where a student in the IEP goal might say during unstructured time, such as recess or lunch, they will approach a their typical peer and will strike up a conversation for two to three minutes about a non-preferred topic. And I'm like thinking to myself, like, imagine if the principal came in during our lunch break and said, all right, Chris, um, you can no longer enjoy your lunch uh, here on Instagram and TikTok. You're going to have to go hang out with the math teachers in the lounge and talk about parabolas. And you have to do that for two to three minutes every day. I'd be like, what is that? And they say, well, we're just giving you the goal that you gave the kid. Like there should never be like the unstructured time is the time where kids are regulating themselves and they are <laughs> catching up to all of the stress of the class and the environment because of all of everything that's going on. So right. Just and that one just example. to think of like what the bigger <laughs> picture is there. Like, what does that lead to? That leads to dysregulation. That leads to feelings of overwhelm. That leads to him being anxious now every day at lunch that this is what it's going to be like. It makes him not intrinsically motivated anymore to want to go to his job. It makes, you know, it's just it's all backfiring. It's what yeah, it is. trickle down. Well, and I think what you're like kind of leaning into here as well is that like compliance based versus relationship based approach. And I think this extends to anytime we're interacting with kids across the board of like, what is our goal here? Someone just the other day was like, I'm trying all these things and the kids aren't listening. And I was like, okay. Um, which, what is the goal? Like, is the goal that we're going to say, I'm going to set all these boundaries and they're going to be like, oh my God, I can't wait to follow it. 
that sounds great, mom. I love that I get to stop playing and clean up my toys and go in and have this meal that I'm not jazzed about. Like that's probably not going to happen. Right. And so I want to touch for a second about what it looks like in, in compliance-based scenarios versus what it looks like. You know, you were saying, Jesse, you've really always operated as a relationship-based therapist. And what does that look like? What does that mean for you? Yeah. And I will say with the exception of one job I had for a period of time, maybe a year, I was in grad school, I was a behavior therapist. So at that point, that's where I was really introduced to compliance-based therapy. And it was, um, you may be familiar with Alfie Cohn, who's the author of a book called Punished by Rewards. And he says, rewards and punishment can get one thing under certain conditions, compliance or temporary compliance. So it's like, what is the goal here? Is the goal here for the child to do the thing that we are wanting them to do? Or is it for them to learn? Or is it for them to be comfortable? Or is it for them to grow into happy adults who are authentic to their true selves, right? So I think- Well, and I um, think really it's what's the long-term goal here. Because I hear that and I'm like, yeah, short-term goal? Like, yeah, for them to comply. Could you please make my life a little easier and could we get out the door, right? Like compliance is convenient. Right. Very for adults. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I think it's really sometimes our short-term goal doesn't match up with the long-term goal. Yeah. And that's really what's shifted our practice so much is Chris was, I feel like you're one of the first people to start going out talking about why aren't we looking at how we assess our kids to begin with, right? Because it's the assessments that create the goals that create the treatment plans. And there's been a lot more, fortunately, recently information on how to conduct these treatment plans that are um, more neurodiversity affirming that respect kids for who they are. But then uh, I've been interviewing therapists in my clinic. And last week I had a therapist who said that she was just telling me the kind of goals that they have written for their kids. And they're just like, one goal for a two-year-old was will name 100 body parts. I was like, are there 100, first of all, (laughs) body parts? Um, Right? But then I said, like, the problem with a goal like that is that it's going to drive the way you do your session because how are you supposed to get a kid to name body parts without making it a structured session? And Chris was like one of the first people to go out there and say there's a better way to assess kids so that our assessments aren't driving these compliance-based goals that are driving the compliance-based therapy. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because with our students, the goals are derived from what the present levels are. So the present levels are coming from what are people putting down in their reports and what are they, what are these conversations that are being had between the educators and the parents? And so all of that language and conversation is what drives the goal. So the first step is to make sure we're getting accurate, an accurate collection of information of who the student is. And um, and to, to follow up on that too, is looking at the strengths, identifying what the abilities are of the child, but then also acknowledging, okay, now that we have this information, how can we help support the needs that are challenging for that student? Yeah, uh, I dig that. Yeah, and that that is how we can craft goals that are supporting, that are affirming for the student. So then 
everybody wins and we have a child who is not put into situations that increase anxiety. Yeah, sure. And just like, can you perform this task so I can check it off my list? Right, right, exactly. Having Sage approved audio for our car rides is a literal lifesaver for my nervous system. And I love making lists of podcasts to share with him when he's ready. I was so excited to hear about a new show called Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, math, geared toward the six plus crowd. Every episode follows two best friends, Max and Molly, who work together to solve riddles and math equations during their time traveling adventures. Recently, we had some family visiting, and on our way to dinner, we popped on an episode of Mysteries About True Histories, Math, with my niece and nephew in the car. In this episode, Max and Molly travel back in time to solve a mystery from the order of the problem solvers, along with lots of kid humor mixed in. It was a fun way to enjoy our car ride together and opened the door for some interesting conversation about history and understanding some of the mysteries of the past. Episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, the perfect length for car rides and meal times, and stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for Mila Bean, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. I don't know about you, but when I scroll through Instagram or I'm tuning into podcasts and diving into parenting resources, resources for myself as a teacher... I can feel overwhelmed. Like, where do I start? I need a guide for what this looks like in practice. And I don't want something that's one size fits all because every child is different, right? And like, if you have multiple children, if you're a teacher, you know that it's not one size fits all. Or if you have seen what works for your sister-in-law or your best friend or your neighbor and you're like, oh my gosh, my child does not respond to that. That is how I felt. And then we created the Collaborative Emotion Processing Method. It is a guide for building emotional intelligence. And y'all, there are five components of the SET method. One is about how to respond to the kids and what it looks like to have adult-child interactions. The other four are about us. Because I don't know about you, but I did not grow up getting these tools. I did not grow up with them. I didn't grow up in this household where... I was taught tools for self-awareness and self-regulation and how to do emotion processing work. 
And now, as a parent and as a teacher, I'm supposed to teach those skills to a tiny human, but we can't teach what we don't know. And so my first book, Tiny Humans, Big Emotions, is here to support you. You can head to www.seedandso.org book and snag Tiny Humans, Big Emotions today. This is a game changer. It's going to build these skills with you, for you, so that you can do this work alongside building these skills for your tiny humans so that they can grow up with a skill set for self-awareness, for regulation, for empathy, for social skills, for intrinsic motivation, a skill set of emotional intelligence so that they can navigate all the things that come their way in life. Snag tiny humans, big emotions, at seedandso.org slash book. I think that that too, stepping back on what Jesse was talking about with the behavior approach, oftentimes we will see, because I work in a school setting, so sometimes we'll see a behavior intervention plan created or just a goal being created. And there's two ways of seeing it. The one I see the most often, almost in all of education, because it's ingrained in our programs and what we learn, which is how do we get this child to, and then insert X, Y, and Z. Hmm. So if a student has these perceived off task behaviors that are, that they're written down or inattention or running out of the class, the question that is framed most often is how do we get this student to stay on task for three minutes? Or how do we get this kid from running out of class? Or how do we get this kid to do X, Y, and Z? And that's never the right question to ask. The the question to ask is why is this child running out of class? Let's get below the behavior. Let's see what's going on in this autonomic nervous system of this child. So then when we can have an understanding of where the child's coming from, we can help meet the needs. So that way we don't have a behavior plan for five years in a row. Correct. Correct. That is going to ultimately likely be punishment reward focused. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the compliance based approach when we have a child that we have to comply or force them to comply to stay on task for three minutes without meeting those sensory needs or whatever it is. Sure, they're going to do the short term compliance thing in that situation, but then it becomes playing whack a mole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've solved that one behavior, and now you got three more elsewhere totally. because the child shows dysregulation in other settings, you know? So, yeah, 100%. and I, we've been really fortunate through our work, speaking, and online to get to meet a lot of autistic adults and make friends with a lot of autistic adults and get to hear their stories of like what it was like for them growing up because. These are not things that people, people were not supported in this way 30 years ago, 20. I mean, a lot of people still aren't. I was going to say, I think it's still an issue. <laughs> but um, we have friends who would say like, I just was so overwhelmed at school. I would go to school and I would hold it all in and I would get home and I would melt down every single mm-hmm. day. And I actually have an autistic colleague and friend. She's an SLP, Jamie Boyle, and she took my sensory course. And that was her first time ever learning about her own sensory system. And of course, that's not why she took it. She took it for her student. And she said, oh my gosh, I can't believe I could make these simple adjustments throughout my day. And now I could go home and not have a meltdown, you know, and it really does feel, I know it's 
a, an uphill battle, but it really is just about like those simple changes we can make. And it is scary what's going on in the schools. It's scary what the goals are. I mean, I know that it's a huge, huge problem, a lot of moving pieces, but what is our goal? You know, is our, is our goal to get kids to graduate high school or is our goal to get kids who graduate high school and are not depressed at the end of the day? Sure. But I think you hit the nail on the head that like you, we, we have so many professionals, I would say most in the field who don't have adequate training of the nervous system and of our sensory systems. And so you're going in, we, we created a sensory profile quiz with um, an OT that we work with a lot and really with the goal of anyone can take it and you can go through and it just gives you more insight into what you might be seeking or sensitive to. And there's like emails that come to follow up to teach you more about. And I was just um, hanging out with one of our schools. We have a, a professional development program and I was hanging out with one of our schools and I asked the teachers at the beginning, like, how many of you know, just your Kickstarters, what the sensory systems are? Like, can we name them? And of course they got the first five, right. That we all learn about the sights, sound, taste, touch, smell. And, uh, then after that, they were like, uh, and I was like, man, this, can you imagine we're, you know, we're thinking of like assessments and goals. I was thinking back of like the ASQ and all these practices that are right now really embedded in our pediatric world. And how for me, when I'm often like filling out the ASQ at the doctor's office and I get to like the social emotional part, I'm always like, oh God, I wish I could rewrite this. Uh, because really I want to get after I want to help kids learn about their nervous system from the jump way more than I want them to share a toy, right? Like I, I want them to know what's happening inside their body because you can't regulate what you're not aware of. Right. So like we, for, for me, when I look at this, I'm like, ah, oh, we just have so many professionals who don't have adequate training in sensory systems to even be able to start to be the detective to say, I mean, I, I totally agree with you that like, I'm way less interested in how do we get this kid to do this thing for two to three minutes, then why is this kid leaving the classroom in the first place, right? Like, but in order to be the detective, you need enough training and education around the nervous system. And I think we do our teachers and professionals in education a disservice there. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, I agree. And I've, I've noticed even when like when talking with the teacher just I think and Jesse and I talk about this I've learned this a lot from Jesse is the questions that we frame to those who are unaware so they can start questioning and coming up with their answers yeah. because it's hard to why every time you sing the morning song this child runs out of the classroom right and Jesse's talking about me when I sing the morning song and yeah everyone runs away. the family <laughs> well, Chris, all four children are dysregulated. What did you sing? <laughs> Blink 182, give me a break. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. That, you know, you're, you bring up a good point, which is everyone has a sensory system. This is not only affecting neurodivergent kids or kids with sensory differences. This affects all of us. And I think that's been one of the coolest things is the more we talk about this, on our live show every week, we we share examples of our kids and us and our sensory systems. And we did a show, for example, on our sensory systems when we went to Disneyland and how it affected everyone. Um, we did an interview with Dr. Winnie Dunn, who's the author of the sensory profile, a really 
popular sensory assessment. And it was like relationship counseling for us, you know, talking to her because you just realize the things that you do in your day, the things might, that might annoy you about another person, that could be because of your sensory system. And I think that when, a lot of times when teachers learn these things, and then we can we can frame it so that it makes sense to them. Like, oh, 100%. well, you know that if you hate wool sweaters and someone said, I want you to wear this wool sweater for the next week when it's 90 degrees also... How are you going to be able to concentrate? Are you going to be able to do your best work? Are you going to be able to teach the class? And so for a lot of us, when we're training other professionals, it's about putting it into perspective for them. And that kind of turns the light on for them of, oh, wow, I can see why this is so hard for my students. Totally. I just wish it was more embedded in the education line in the first place, right? Like I had a whole series of classes on classroom management in my master's program guess what wasn't helpful, right? Like there are so many more things that would have been more helpful if the goal was classroom management in the end. <laughs> I, I, there was a lot that would have been way more helpful than what I received in those classes. And, but it's that compliance-based, right? Like it was all compliance-based in there. And so I just wish, like, I, I, I love that we're talking about it more and I wish it was more embedded in our systems in, from the jump that we're training folks from, from the beginning with this. And like, yeah, it would help society out. Like in general, if you think about it, if we, if it was embedded in the programs and in the education system, and then everyone can learn about their, their needs, their, their, their systems, then that turns into healthier relationships as they get into adult life as well and healthier friendships and healthier ways to handle and understand each other, you know, totally. I think it would also shift us from the neurodiverse term which I would like to chat about. I think it would shift us into being able to just talk about the nervous system as a whole and recognizing that uh, what if we all were able to acknowledge that all of us have nervous systems and they all operate differently and that it's less about, for me, like what's neurotypical and let's make that the school system or workplace or whatever fit around this human and then everybody else we can make accommodations for. But what if instead it was like, hey, how does this person best operate? How how does their brain and body work best? Great. We have all those things in place for all humans. And we're just, what if everything was like an accommodation, if you will? Does that make sense? Yeah. Just like creating a society of where there's inclusion and we're removing barriers. So everybody's needs are being met. I think that would be a (laughs) kind of cool, right? (laughs) That would be kind of (laughs) cool. Reminds me of something Chris taught me, which I don't know where you got this, but we always say this in our households, which is if you do the easy things, life will be hard. And if you do the hard things, life will be easy. And I think this is that classic case of people see the entry point to this work as being hard, which prevents them from wanting to do it. But they don't realize that if you do the hard work now, everything else will be easy. And it comes back to the classes you're taking on classroom management. Like there's a phrase in marketing, which is sell people what they want, but give them what they need. You know, people don't want, oh, I'm going to teach you how to connect with every one of your students so that they can trust you and you're going to build such a beautiful relationship. And then they're going to learn like they want, oh, manage my classroom. That's exactly what I want to do. You know, so it's like, that's the sell them what they want 
want. That's what they want. But what they need is really so much deeper than that. Yeah. They want class dojo part two. <laughs> Stickers <laughs> and charts, giving out yeah. these things to manage behaviors immediately. But that doesn't solve the, the end goal. It does. It's counterintuitive to what we want as the long-term goal. And that's that's right. Challenge. Yeah, well, you're right. It's, it's, a, it's an upfront cost with a huge ROI, mm-hmm. right? And like, I think whether you're a parent of a child or you're a teacher, you're working in the system, you're a therapist, it, it's, I think, the same across the board. I was presenting at a school a few weeks ago for parents and there was a mom who was like, Oh, it just like sounds kind of exhausting. And I was like, yeah, totally. When you're building these skills, it is pretty exhausting. And then you get to sit back and watch them say things like feeling overwhelmed, going to go inside and take a break and come back out. But it was a lot of support and handholding to get to the point of him being able to recognize that in his body and have tools to communicate it and take that break and then come back out when he was ready. It was a, it was a lot (laughs) and, uh, but it is, it's a, there's a huge ROI in this work when we do uh, pay that upfront cost, which is time. (laughs) I never want to minimize how hard it is. And I say that all the time, especially when I'm talking to parents, because as parents (laughs) know, like it is easy as a therapist. And I was a therapist before I had kids. It's very easy to say, okay, now go home and do 30 minutes of your speech homework tonight. And then they come in the next week and I go, why don't you do it? Where's your tracker? You know, like, and then uh, however many of our kids have already been through therapy and how little we have done. And it's just like, I know how hard that is. So it's just one of those things where I think starting with baby steps helps so much. Like what is like something so small that I can do right now that will start to move me in the right direction. And I really believe that that's the only way that we're going to get there. Totally. Well, it might even just be starting with learning about what are they, how does their system work? You know, like maybe nothing even changes at the beginning. It could start with learning terminology. Like it could start with the language we're using when we talk about our kids. It could be as easy as that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. How do you explain neurodiversity to kids? Gosh, um, so I, gosh, let's see if I can break it down with how how I describe it to the students I work with. So neurodiversity in general we I break it down literally with the word neuro. We say, okay, what does that mean? Neuro, neurology, neurologist, who is that? That's about the brain, right? And then we talk about diversity. We, okay, diversity means differences. So we look at neurodiversity being, being brains are different and they're, they are valid for how they function. Everybody's brain's work differently. So then that's kind of what I do as a a working foundation. I just break it down into brain differences. That's neurodiversity. Now, what we then do is I talk about what neurotypicality means or what, what, what a neurotypical might look like. Society's way of seeing one way of communicating or being kind of what the, what most people fit into, right? This normalization, I guess we should say. And then anybody that um, has differences for the way that they function would be neurodivergent, right? So that can include anything that diverges away from what society has 
constructed as normal. ADHD, dyslexia, even trauma, right? Sure. So it's not like we can be, it's not like everyone's just born neurodivergent. Some can have an acquired neurodivergency. So that's kind of an important thing to identify. So um, the phrase I hear oftentimes is when people refer to students as being neurodiverse, the neurodiverse is, makes up a, a large group of people. So football team is neurodiverse. The student body at the school is neurodiverse. Neurodivergent are those who fall on the outside of what is society has deemed to be normal. But the challenging part and you had Dr. Gabor Mate on your mm -hmm. on your podcast. So he's got that book, The, the Myth of Normal. The mm -hmm. challenging part is that over time, and, and I got a lot of this from his idea because it aligns directly with what we do, sure. is that society has created this little box of what is normal. And anybody who's neurodivergent has to be fixed or treated and and that is what creates trauma too so it's kind of getting out of the idea of saying hey instead of constantly trying to fix people who aren't broken why don't we provide adequate supports and services why don't we remove barriers from environments why don't we create goals that are meaningful to the person why don't we build connections with people why don't we build relationships with people why don't we validate emotions in one's lived experiences all of those types of things are a much healthier way of creating a less toxic society. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. Yeah. Thank you for coming to Chris's TED Talk. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. By the way, Dr. Gabor Mate is like his, one of his favorite people. Yeah. Like, when he saw that he was on your podcast, he almost cried. 
And I was like, wow, I love this. Like my, he's like, you know, you have mm -hmm. people that are like certain people that people yeah. would love to meet in life. Like, you know, Taylor Swift. Oprah, I was going to say. <laughs> Mine was like, Dr. Stuart Shanker. He's like number one on my list. And then I got to interview him and fell more in love with him. And I was like, oh, this is the, this is the dream. Oh, yes. that is amazing. That's the best part about a podcast is that you get to invite these people. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to connect you with Dr. Gabor. That would be awesome. I think that, yeah, the, our mentors and those we look up to are in our wheelhouse of, of this because that's how we change. Those are the people that sure. are changing the world. Yeah. Well, and I, one thing that I really like about his work is his acknowledgement of um, coping mechanisms and that our nervous system, we have neuroplasticity and things will ebb and flow and change. And just as you said, like trauma can result in somebody being neurodivergent. And that that's that's a coping mechanism that we've I'm so grateful that we have these as survival strategies and the acknowledgement that sometimes we're creating these barriers and these challenges and these obstacles for our kids for our society with the lack of mental health support uh, right. and yeah I, I dig that I I find personally the largest challenge in this being just like energy right but like some days I wake up and I'm like yeah I'm gonna slay this right and like then you have a morning and every boundary is pushed and it's like even if I know where it's coming from it's exhausting and then we fall out of connection and relationship and one of the things I feel like I've really had to practice I was a you know teacher before I was a parent and both as a teacher and as a parent is that grace to say like it's okay to fall out of connection and relationship and to come back into it yeah and I was gonna say you know that's the beauty of being human yeah without getting too deep that you know that's what life is all about and that's the thing is we all have those similarities and if we have those moments, how could we possibly expect our kids to never have those moments? You know, I think as being a sensory integration trained therapist, that's something I talk about so much is our goal is not for kids to be in this optimal level of arousal all day long. We are not in that place all day long. So it's just, um, yeah, how can we humanize our, our kids, what we're doing and and realize that everyone has these challenges and, you know, it's not, not set our expectations for kids to be so crazy high things that we would never expect of ourselves. Yeah. I think that's huge. And I think when we can acknowledge that, then we can adjust task demands, right? Like we can say, yeah, there are times where, no, I can't come up with what's for dinner and we're going to order takeout. And in the same vein, like there are times where my child who knows all the steps to get through his routine for bedtime just needs more help, right? Like I, I think when we have that humanizing perspective of it, then we can adjust task demands and not feel like, oh my God, we're taking eight steps back. They know how to do this. Yeah, that's another thing I see you talking about bedtime. Just I feel like the trauma, I just feel it just hearing the word <laughs> bedtime routine. Oh my God, uh, getting four kids ready for bed is, feat, I don't know, we deserve a marathon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking yeah. of rewards, I'm ready for my reward <laughs> from the universe. Um, but that's the thing too, is that these big, and I know you've got your book and all of that big emotions. That's, you know, mm -hmm. 
um, stranger to that, but we all have those and kids have those too. And I think a lot of the times, especially working with parents who have neurodivergent kids, they're like, why is my kid doing this? And I'm like, every two-year-old is doing that. I promise you that, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I think that's where the pro-social thing comes in, right? And I want to throw that in quotes because that's the that's the term we've been talking so much about at Seed lately. I'd love your thoughts on it. But it's this, for us, our breakdown of it is, if it's this idea that, you know, every time you feel angry or every time you feel overwhelmed or dysregulated by any sort of emotion, that you're going to express it in a very specific way that is going to be what is often called pro-social, right? That's going to be kind, that's going to be almost regulated. And it doesn't, I, I just don't, I don't get that expectation, right? Like I. I don't snap at my husband because I'm like, yeah, I want to be just rude right now, right? Like really want to start something. No, it happens because I'm overwhelmed or I'm frustrated or whatever. And it comes out and, and it's okay, right? Like I don't expect a kid to be overwhelmed or angry or disappointed and to just like in a calm voice be like, um, hi mom, I'm feeling really angry with you right now. And so I don't, I I would love your take on the idea of pro-social. And I think that that's where this comes in with the, my kids throwing this tantrum or they're melting down or we're seeing these behaviors. What they're really see, saying is they aren't pro-social behaviors that we're seeing. And that feels concerning. That made me think, what was that IEP goal you just told me like a week ago about when the child was dysregulated? The crying one? that he won't, that he'll do something. I just, I can't remember what it there was. There was one that I came by that was a behavioral one that was like, child will not cry. And I was like, like will, oh, they have to suppress their feelings by not crying all day. It was like, when they're dysregulated, they will. And then it was like, do something really calm, not cry, but do not ringing a bell, uh -uh, not that one. <laughs> but it was something like, yeah, like basically saying the kid is not allowed to display their emotions. And that's just something that's been so huge. Something we talk about all the time. What is her name? The author, Susan David. Yeah. Susan David and her emotional book. agility. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Where it's like, we are not our emotions. And I think that's something we talk to our kids about all the time you know we're not our emotions and we're allowed to feel any kind of way and um we're really into like meditation in our household and using our free educator headspace account <laughs> <laughs> cheers but, um, it's like we can feel those like feelings of a cloud over our head and um my son was doing therapy for being anxious he's six and he was diagnosed with anxiety at two years old and it's funny because his therapist just this was recently I was like oh how am I going to address this one is she said something like sometimes we feel those bad feelings like mm -hmm. um, we're scared or we're and it took everything for me not to jump in and be like actually you know emotions aren't good or bad they just are and it's okay for us to feel everyone and I was like, okay, I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt here and um, see what happens. But it just, we have to let our kids feel. And for us to 
make them think it's not okay to do that is not helping anyone. Well, it leads to physical health too. So when you are actively taught to suppress your big emotions, then you are actively suppressing your immune system. And that leads to physical health. So we'll have kids that are absent a lot from earaches, headaches, all of those things that they describe to us based on a lot of this stuff too. So I think that's an important, yeah, you yeah. brought up a good, good. You're, um, he's very <laughs> into the connection between yeah, it's huge. Physical health and emotional health. You are. Huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The brain, brain body. We uh, both just did cold plunges this morning. Oh, oh, I okay. I started doing cold showers like at the end of my shower, and I I hate it. I hate it every time. I hate it every time. And then it feels so good for a while after. And so I keep doing, I'm doing the hard thing. I'm listening to you, Chris. I'm doing the hard thing. Yes. Um, but I do, I do hate it. Um, and I'm always cold. I like love to be clammy is like my favorite thing to be. And, but I have to like labor, breathe, <laughs> I feel like relearn how to breathe at the beginning of it. Every time it, uh, it has people were like, it gets easier. Oh, it's gotten easier. Uh, so cheers to you for doing a cold plunge. Uh, I, uh, when I think of pro social, I think like, I, I think the challenge that people come up with is like, sure. I, I definitely want them to like feel all their feelings and to express them. And I don't want them hitting and I don't want them throwing things. And like, I agree. Also don't want them hitting or throwing things, but I think we can go even further down that rabbit hole sometimes to like, and I don't want them yelling and I don't want them crying and I don't want, and it goes on and on and on to like, okay, well, how can they express? <laughs> like, what can they do? What do you do when you're mad? What feels good for you when you're overwhelmed or when you're sad or disappointed? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And that just goes back to the importance of co-regulation. And that's another expectation we put on kids that doesn't make any sense is like child will self-regulate, blah, 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 whatever the goal is. Um, I had a parent who just told me her seven-year-old when he was overstimulated in class, they put him in a room by himself where he peed oh. in his hands and then, you know, got mad at him for doing that. And I'm like, oh my God, like that is never something we would do is leave a kid to try to regulate on their own. And I will say, you know, some kids want to be alone and like our six-year-old, sometimes he wants some space, but then he yeah. also very much wants you to come back to him and have that moment where you are cuddling and co-regulating. And it's just, that's how humans are and the need for co-regulation as we don't have to tell you never goes away. So why wouldn't we give that to our kids? And I think a lot of the time it comes back to us almost having to, like, I think as therapists or as teachers or as parents, we tend to come into interactions with kids as like, I'm up here and you're the child down here and you need to do what I say so that you can get the things that you want. And this type of approach is really about coming down and being on the same level with feelings of mutual respect of how can I give you what you need so that you are supported in the best way possible. And that comes, honestly, that starts with us being able to take care of ourselves as adults in order to be that person for kids. Yeah. That power with instead of power over. 
Right. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, that's huge. And and you're right. The self care part is crucial to us doing this, and I, we end up in this cycle of like not taking care of ourselves and then expecting a child to get calm for us um, when we can't get calm for the child. Right. All backwards. Uh, that's actually with the co-regulation thing that I have been including in the accommodations page of the IEP is just to ensure that some of these students who have bigger emotions, that they have a safe person that they mm -hmm. can go to in the building that can help co-regulate. Because that's always important. If, if a child is starting to become dysregulated and they don't have anybody that they can trust or a safe person, or they don't know what to do, then we're just running on the hamster wheel. Yeah. So yeah, having that ability to know who they can go to, to help in those moments is really a critical element to that um and in your school document it, it ends up to be you a lot of the time yeah, I'm, I'm not shocked I'm like how was your lunch oh this kid came in we're hanging out the whole time yeah right yeah. now I have 911 students that I've been dealing with no I'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be shocked I wouldn't be shocked at all oh man thank you thank you for doing this work thanks for having this conversation in this space it's just so crucial it's so crucial that exactly the work that you're doing continues to spread and and be present in schools and in households in child care and beyond. Um, thank you. Where can folks find you, learn more about what you're doing? I am at sensorySLP.com on social, sensory.slp. I guess that's where I am. And then we also have our weekly live show, which we do every Tuesday on YouTube called Making the Shift for Autistic Kids. And then that comes out as a podcast every week as well. Yeah. And then for me, everything is speech, dude. So Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter. Yellow pages. Uh, Lemonade. <laughs> uh, what's the other one? Clapper I'm on quite often. Uh, speech dude. Speechdude.com, you name it. So well, that's where you can find me. Thank you both. You're the bomb. Thanks for hanging out with me. Thank you so much, Liz. We appreciate you having us on. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the transcript at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community over on Instagram hanging out every day with more free content? Come join us at seed.and.so, S-E-W. Take a screenshot of you tuning in, share it on the gram, and tag seed.and.so to let me know your key takeaway. If you're digging this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We love collaborating with you to raise emotionally intelligent humans. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.